the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. My sister texted me and was like, hey, she got killed. And so I looked it up and I was like, oh my God. Like, it's just after everything she had been through, you never know when your last day is or how you're going to die. It feels so like heart-wrenching to say, watch your back around the people you love. That's not something that you should ever have to worry about. Yeah, it kind of makes me look at the people close to me a little bit differently, just because, like, what is anyone around me capable of? You know, it just makes me a little more hesitant and just a little, a little more on guard. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm here with Alexis Linkletter, and I'm going to set the scene for you a little bit because my parents are here and sitting right behind me and watching us. I can see Jack's mom's legs in the in the frame. Um, I have an 800 square foot, very small apartment, and my parents are up here visiting me. We're going to go to dinner after this, and there's just nowhere for them to go. So they're here with me uh, watching you know, watching the sausage get made, as we say. You guys are a tight-knit Vanek family. I think it's working. It's okay. Yeah, it's working. Happy to have them. Yeah, I know. They're the best. Should we go into the day? I think we should go into the day. But first, yes, I want to give a one little announcement that everyone, as it always should be, everyone <laughs> is presumed innocent until proven guilty. And that applies yes. to today's story because the story we're talking about happened very recently and it has not yet gone to trial. So something to keep in mind as you're listening to this story unfold. Absolutely. But now we're ready for the day. Before that, we're getting into the day. So it is Wednesday, November 23rd. I didn't know the date. But most importantly, it is the day before Thanksgiving. And you know what that means. It is Blackout Wednesday. It's the drunkest day of the year. Everybody is back in their hometowns, partying their balls off and waking up tomorrow morning really fucking hungover. I will probably not be partying. I, I personally do not usually. I think there might have been one year that I I did the blackout Wednesday in, in, in full force. Yeah. Like college, college is when you do that. And you go to like a nightclub and you spend a lot of money and then you're hungover for Thanksgiving and you're kind of miserable other than when you're eating. Or it's like when people are back in their hometown and they go to like the local watering hole and see all everybody from high school. And, and the drama ensues. Yes. Nice uh, neighborhood drama. It is also Dr. Who Day. Eat a cranberry day. It's also our friend Afton's birthday. It is Afton's birthday. Happy birthday, Afton. She listens to every episode of The First Degree. We love you. Eat a cranberry day. National Cashew Day. And National Espresso Day. Okay. I will be drinking an espresso to celebrate today. Yeah, all right. Why not? I love that. Well, Me too. Um, yeah, everybody go out, get drunk, and, uh, you know, tomorrow's the best day of the year, I feel like, food-wise. Absolutely. All right, well, I think that that is enough of that, so let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. We 
We cover a lot of different cases on the first degree, and the circumstances are always terrible, no question. But when someone who devotes their time to advocacy work for survivors of violence is lost, it's especially devastating. Many people who engage in this work are often survivors themselves. They feel compelled to use their own voice and experience to show others in a similar situation that they're not alone and that people do care. And they do this despite knowing the very real ongoing risk to their safety by their abusers. But to make things more complex, and we say it time and time again, those who want to make a change in the world don't always have a sunny past. They make mistakes. They let their loved ones down sometimes and sometimes take a self-destructive path. And this often results in a fractured relationship or two or many where things fester for the party who feels they've been wronged. So if someone with a troubled background takes every step they can to make things right in the world, but loses their life just as things are turning around, can there ever really be any justice? So we begin today's case on May 19th of 2022. So this is only six months ago. Many parents across the U.S. were panicking as the country was in the grip of a baby formula shortage. And in international relations, the U.S. Senate overwhelmingly approved a nearly $40 billion emergency military, economic, and humanitarian aid for Ukraine three months into the Russian invasion. On a lighter note, it is the 60th anniversary of Marilyn Monroe's iconic rendition of Happy Birthday for President JFK's 45th birthday at Madison Square Garden. Ah, what a moment. What a performance. What a performance. And for all the Swifties out there, I know this is a rough... uh, Difficult time for all of you. Sore subject. I can't get away from it, even if I try. But uh, back six months ago is when Taylor Swift was awarded an honorary fine arts doctorate degree from NYU. And speaking of pop music, Wait For You by Future featuring Drake and Thames debuted at number one, knocking as it was by Harry Styles down to number two. And at the movie theater, Disney superhero film Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, was number one at the box office. The setting for today's story is Pleasant Grove, Utah. Situated in north-central Utah, the city of around 38,000 people is located about 35 miles south of Salt Lake City. It's more of a built-up suburban area. So Pleasant Grove is known as Utah's city of trees, but it has a bloody past. So the city was originally named Battle Creek after a massacre in 1849. Settlers from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints murdered all local male Ute tribe members who called the area home. That's terrible. After Brigham Young believed they'd stolen some of his horses, which were actually located before the massacre occurred. So awful, tragic Mm, scenery here. So on a very different note, every summer, Pleasant Grove holds an annual festival known as Strawberry Days, which has been going on for 100 years. What a nice tradition. That's so nice. The event came about when strawberry farming drove the city's economy, even though it no longer does today. However, the festival remains popular, now featuring a rodeo, car show, parade, and concert. So fun fact, Pleasant Grove was also one of the filming locations for the 1994 miniseries adaptation of Stephen King's The Stand. And our first degree for today's story is named Laura. Laura grew up in a small community in central Utah, but today she lives just outside of Salt Lake City. And unlike a bigger metropolitan area with regular city crime and regular city problems, the only things really happening in the Salt Lake City outskirts in places like Pleasant Grove were drug-related offenses and DUIs. I wouldn't call it a small community, but it's not like a, a huge city either. It's bigger up here but people know each other. 
So back in 2019, Laura and her sister decided that they wanted to get tattoos together. And let's think about tattoos for a second. They're permanent. They're permanent reminders of something, an idea, a memory, ideology, thing you're committing to in that moment. Tattoos are significant. Even if you regret them later, it represents who you were in that moment, right? So naturally, given the importance and significance of tattoos and what they represent to a lot of people, Laura wanted a really good tattoo artist. So Laura's sister arranged for them to get appointments with a really reputable and great tattoo artist in town who was in the greater Salt Lake City suburban area. My sister and I were going to go get tattoos together. And she was like, hey, I want this lady. Like, I will not go to anyone else for a tattoo. She did one of my previous tattoos and like, we're going to go to her. And so I was like, okay, like, cool, whatever. The tattoo artist Laura's sister wanted them to see was a woman named Nicole or Nikki as she was known. She got one tattoo from Nicole. It was a like a yin yang that she got on her forearm. And then she got a butterfly tattoo. I have a semicolon butterfly and she got one to match mine. I had got just a little semicolon on my wrist because like I have struggled with my mental health for my whole life. Like I'd been drawing a semicolon on my wrist for a hot minute. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to get it tattooed on. So I was talking to my sister and I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to do this. And she was like, let's go get tattoos together. So I just got just a tiny little, tiny little tattoo on my wrist. In that part of Utah, the alternative subculture, including those in the tattooing scene, was a pretty tight-knit group. And everybody knows everybody. And because a large segment of the population in Utah belongs to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the LDS Church, tattoo parlors aren't necessarily a mainstream thing the same way that they are across the rest of the country. Everybody here is Mormon. It's a little bit different, like up closer to the city. The more people there are, the less percentage are Mormon, but like it's still probably not as big as other areas of the country. My sister lived up here for a while, so I think you could say probably closer knit than other places would be. So by 2022, Nikki was killing it. And she was a successful tattoo artist, which is a craft she'd been honing for more than 10 years. She developed her tattooing skills as a pencil artist, dabbing in paints and color. She loved most styles of tattooing, but doing black and gray pieces with intricate shading were some of her favorite creations. In her own words, I'm very blessed to do what I do for a living. At the same time that Nikki was very civic-minded and cared about people, she gave her time volunteering for organizations and causes that were really important to her. Throughout her career, she participated in numerous fundraisers, raising money via promotional discounts through local tattooing businesses, with all proceeds donated to local families suffering hardship. Laura's sister also told her that Nikki was heavily involved in advocacy for survivors of domestic violence and sex trafficking. So this was because Nikki had been to hell and back in her own adult life, recovering from addiction and surviving abusive, intimate relationships. In one terrifying incident, an ex-partner of Nikki's assaulted her so brutally she was almost killed. Thankfully, she managed to escape, and we'll talk a bit more about that in a bit. But Nikki was also inspired by how people rallied around her to help, that she decided to give back by helping other survivors deal with their trauma. Laura felt instantly at ease when she sat down to get her tattoo from Nikki. So she talked a little bit about some of her medical appointments and like therapy appointments that she had been having to go to. She was in therapy pretty regularly. She was so sweet, very talkative, and she was 
so open about everything that she went through too. Like, I didn't want to question her about everything that my sister had told me because I didn't know what areas were sensitive and what were not. And I didn't want to really trigger her, but she was so open about so many of the things that she had been through and like all of the medical procedures that she had been through and all of that. So she was just super, super sweet. It was just instant. As like as soon as I started talking to her, I liked her. I liked her a lot. One of the organizations Nikki devoted her time to was called Soul Survivor Inc. This was a nonprofit that helps sex trafficking survivors and ex-gang members by arranging to cover up branding marks and physical scars with new remedial customized tattoos or removing them altogether using non-invasive technology. The organization's website explains it best, saying we come alongside their survivor and are with them throughout the entire process. We ensure the safety and privacy of procedures so the survivor won't have to endure additional traumas. Ultimately, the goal is to eliminate all branding tattoos, providing hope for an emotional, spiritual, and physical release from the survivor's painful past. So as part of Nikki's work, she traveled around Utah into places like California, Arizona, and Missouri, with a regular monthly stint at a private studio in Phoenix. In addition to that, she was also involved with survivors of domestic violence and those recovering from addiction via a local organization named A New Dawn. Those who knew Nikki described her as someone with a heart of gold, who was willing to help anyone in need. And we briefly mentioned a horrific attack that Nikki had survived a couple years previously at the hands of an ex-boyfriend. And there's not much public information and next to no news media reports on the incident. But from the information available, it seems that around March of 2018, Nikki got into a relationship with a man whose first name is believed to be Donald. The couple moved in together pretty quickly, and it was only about three weeks into their relationship that Donald became violent with Nikki. Like many women in abusive relationships, Nikki kept telling herself that she could love Donald enough to see that he didn't need to resort to violence and held out hope that he would change. But Nikki soon realized the relationship was going to cost her her life if she didn't leave. In July of 2018, she ended things with Donald. Under the guise of helping her move her stuff out, he got her to return to the home they'd shared by apologizing profusely and offering to help move her things back to her parents' house if she agreed to stay together but live separately. So obviously, he was lying. So Nikki, of course, had no intention of working anything out with Donald. She just wanted to be out of there ASAP and be moving on with her life. But taking Donald up on his offer to help move her stuff, she went to his place where they walked into the house and then she was led into the windowless garage that was attached to the house. And when she walked into the garage, Nikki had a weird feeling. She noticed the closed garage door wasn't only unplugged, but rods were stuck into the opening mechanism so nobody could lift it up. It was then that Nikki realized that she was trapped. Donald held her captive and proceeded to brutally beat and torture Nikki, knocking out and breaking almost all of her top teeth and inflicting severe injuries, including a broken jaw. Nikki was sure she was going to die, and in her own words, she said, It was the most sickening feeling in the world. I knew I couldn't fight my way out. To know in my head that you just have to be smarter than him to find a way out was one of the hardest things, especially when you're being tortured and hurt. You want to survive it, and knowing that you're going to die, it's terrifying to go through that, and I knew that there was no way I was going to get out of there. Nikki had to play an agonizing waiting game. She knew that panicking or fighting back was only going to get her more hurt or killed. So she stayed calm and tried to formulate a plan. So every time Donald went back into the house, she quickly got up and pulled one rod at a time out of the garage door. And I'm not really certain about, you know, the engineering of this garage door, but presumably 
these rods keep the garage door, you know, stiff. And if she pulls them out one at a time, he's not going to notice. And then she's going to be able to lift it open. I'm not really sure, but super smart and took a lot of stabilizing herself in this really horrible situation to be able to think of doing this, right? Yeah. So she was doing this over and over and then she would go hide the rod and go lay back down and pretend that she was still bound and that he wouldn't, you know, so he didn't pick up on anything that she was doing. Because she knew if Donald caught her and figured out what she was doing, trying to escape, everything was over. Right. And she did manage to escape. She pushed the door up and rolled underneath it. A neighbor on the street saw her emerge, came to her aid, and called the police. I can't imagine what this scene was like. It's something out of a fucking horror movie. Totally. So Donald was arrested, but freed on bail until his trial. And from what we understand, Nikki's smashed jaw had to be wired shut, and she was going to need dental implants to repair the damage that Donald had done. Most of this is from what my sister told me that Nicole had shared with her. But her ex-boyfriend held her hostage and, like, beat the fucking shit out of her. And, like, she had to get dental implants to, like replace most of her teeth all of these horrible injuries she suffered through so much and like came out on the other side despite the trauma nikki wanted to know directly from donald why he subjected her to such a harrowing experience she texted him saying that he owed her an apology and his response was to tell nikki you're absolutely right i hope one day you can find it in your heart to give me the apology you owe me for putting me in jail hate this fucking guy oh my god yeah To even describe him as a complete piece of shit is really showing him some kindness that he doesn't deserve. Like, he is the lowest of the fucking low. And Donald's gaslighting response was all that Nikki needed to hear. She knew he'd abused other women in his life, and she had to take a stand. She wasn't going to drop the charges and committed herself to seeing the criminal process all the way through. So a protective order was put in place, and it's understood that Donald was convicted and sent to jail. And while we don't know the exact circumstances surrounding this conviction or length of his sentence, to give you a guideline as an example, in Utah, aggravated assault is a third-degree felony, which can land you in prison for one to five years. So depending on the circumstances, you could alternatively be sentenced to a term in the county jail, not exceeding 10 years, or probation and jail. If it's your first offense, you can be placed on adult probation and parole with supervised probation for 36 months. So unclear what he received. I know it's not nearly enough. And that's all I know. No, absolutely not. So Nikki's experience is obviously completely and utterly traumatizing for her. And she hadn't been treated well in some of her other relationships, too. She's spoken openly about her experiences on social media, and she's given interviews on podcasts. She was sharing that she felt so broken, so lost, and without hope that she even wanted to take her own life. And according to her, over the next few years, she continued to struggle with addiction, resulting in multiple relapses. But despite the turmoil in her life, Nikki had four important reasons which kept her going. And this was in the form of her three sons and her daughter, who she loved fiercely from a previous marriage. Fast forward to the spring of 2022. 40-year-old tattoo artist, domestic violence survivor, and advocate Nikki Peterson had found the happiness she always deserved. On April 20th, 2022, she married the true love of her life. We're not going to include his name. This is a very fresh case, and 
I'm sure her, her former partner is grieving and we're not going to give you any personal information about him, but Nikki was madly in love. She was on cloud nine. And in the pictures we saw on Facebook, she looked radiant on her wedding day, wearing a gorgeous black and white lace dress. It was an understated wedding, but Nikki and her now husband looked really, really happy in their photos. And the newlyweds made their home at an apartment in Pleasant Grove and settled into married life. And they were just happy. Things were good. And shortly thereafter, our first degree, Laura, heard some stunning news. My sister texted me and was like, hey, Nicole died. She got killed. And so I looked it up and I was like, oh, my God. It's just after everything she had been through. Nikki had been killed. It was shocking. How did this happen? Who did it? And why did this happen? So to answer all of these questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. Laura had just heard about the sudden death of local tattoo artist and the woman who had just given her a tattoo, 40-year-old Nikki Peterson. So Nikki was born on February 25th, 1982 in American Fork, Utah. Nikki was the oldest of five children to her parents, Jordan and Laureen Dinehart. In her younger years, Nikki was a talented dancer who loved sports and cheerleading. That sounds like you, Jack. It does. You were a little cheerleader. And she also had a flair for drawing and painting. Again, just like Jack. She was a passionate, lifelong fan of the Las Vegas Raiders football team and often proudly wore their merchandise to show her support. And she even slept with a Raiders pillow pet every night. So she loved her Raiders. That's cute. So in the year 2000, Nikki graduated from Alpine Summit High School. And a few months later, on October 11th, she and her 18-year-old boyfriend, Joseph Gabaldon, welcomed a son named Gage. And from what we can find out, it appears that the couple already had one son together already. Nikki and Joseph went on to marry and had two more children. However, they divorced in March of 2005. The couple had joint custody of the kids who lived full-time with Nikki. So several years later, the kids were getting older, and Nikki wanted to pursue her artistic talents. In September of 2011, she started working as a tattoo artist, which was something she was pursuing aggressively and was one of her dreams to do. But by the summer of 2014, the wheels were starting to fall off as Nikki hit a little bit of a rough patch. The kids were having problems at school, and while still in Nikki's custody, the state intervened. And according to court documents, there was little parental structure and often the kids didn't know where Nikki was. So she reached out to her ex, Joseph, for help, who moved in to help care for the children. The court eventually decided to give Joseph full custody of the kids, with Nikki paying child support and having visitation. And she was really committed to getting her life back on track to be the best mom that she could. In her words, and remember, Nikki had shared her story and shared her experience and talked very candidly about her life in several forms on social media and, you know, on some podcasts. And in her words, her family were part of a group close to her that she called her ride or die, whom she loved with every fiber of her being. And it was clear from Nikki's Facebook page just how much she loved her children. She knew her struggles had been extremely tough on her kids, but she was incredibly proud of them. On Gage's 16th birthday in 2016, she posted... Happy sweet 16 to my son, Gage, who is one of my best friends, one of the realest people that I know, and I'm blessed to be able to call myself his mom because I learn and grow from him every day. Four months later, she posted, he's probably going to kill me for posting this, but I truly and sincerely want my son Gage to know how much I love and adore him. Even at 16 years old, he will watch Netflix and chill with his mama and make sure I'm never alone. I'm very blessed to have him as my son. So sweet. Really sweet. And 
we know that by 2018, Nikki was in that relationship, the abusive one with Donald. So following the assault, the one that Nikki escaped from, a local network of women advocates arranged for Nikki to move into transitional housing to get her out of this relationship. And they helped her by sourcing clothing for her kids and supported her through the trauma she'd experienced. And for this, she was forever grateful and it inspired her to also give back and do advocacy work. So several months later in October, Nikki sat in the tattoo chair. She had already had a lot of work done. And this time she was again on the other side of the needle. So Nikki, if you can try to picture it, she rocked a really badass hairstyle. She had the front part of the left side of her head shaved. And now she was getting more ink. And it was to celebrate the fact that she had survived this horrible, abusive relationship. You know, it was, it was a tribute in a reminder for herself that like she's overcome a lot and she's a work in progress. Right. So on her head, she had tattoos of a clock, a sunflower and a bee and unsure of the meaning of those things, but they meant something to her, which is all that matters. Right. So the following month, Nikki was a guest speaker at a charity gala event called the Dawn of Hope advocating for women who are survivors of abuse and recovering from addiction. And you can see in the pictures from the event that she had like the biggest smile on her face and she was slaying it in this amazing, stunning green backless gown. It looked awesome. And afterwards, Nikki posted on Facebook reflecting on her experience with Donald saying, I think for most women who have gone through abuse, so many people tell you, oh, you're exaggerating or your story isn't as bad as mine. There's always one uppers. In my situation, I was so hurt so lost and confused by what he had done to me and how far he was willing to go to make sure that I was literally not going to be with anybody else. My heart aches for the women still in that place, and I'm on a motherfucking mission to save all that I can, to love them and show them that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You've got people here that will walk that tunnel with you. That's so sweet. So sweet. It sounds like she means it. She sounds so sincere. Oh, yeah. In December 2018, Nikki appeared on the Bald Avenger podcast, joining other survivors and talking to motivational speaker Jason Cisneros about her experience. Two months later, Nikki finally had her dental reconstruction work completed. Again, thanks to the generosity of local advocacy. Because remember, she had almost all of her teeth broken and her jaw broken. And dental work is so expensive. Oh my God. It's so expensive. Like, you know, if you need a root canal or something, it's like $5,000. It's it's yeah. unreal. And this woman has four kids. So it's pretty incredible that an advocacy group helped her because every time she looked in the mirror, it was probably a reminder of what she'd experienced. Yeah. And if you feel insecure when you look in the mirror and all you see is like your trauma, you can't. No, it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to get you know, make any sort of progress. Definitely. So October 2019 was a big personal milestone for Nikki, and she was 60 days sober. On her Facebook page, she posted, my life has improved tremendously and with my sobriety has come trust, faith, and support in all aspects. Each day holds something new, and it's so great to be able to face it with clarity and contribute to my day in a positive way these days. Thanks to everyone for the support and love for believing in me. And on Nikki's 38th birthday, just four months later, she celebrated another lap around the sun by getting a tattoo on her leg saying, if you can't handle me at my worst, then you sure as hell don't deserve me at my best. And she also got the word courage on the side of her head. Dude, she is badass for getting all these head tattoos. She really is. And she looks, she still looks so feminine and like, she still looks so great. We're looking at pictures of her right now and she's just looks like someone I want to be friends with. Yeah. So 
In March of 2020, Nikki was doing great, and she started volunteering with Soul Survivor, Inc., traveling the country to help survivors of violence and trafficking. She was empowered and in a unique position given her own experience, having learned about the dynamics and cycles of abusive relationships firsthand. A couple of months later, her youngest son, who was Gage's younger brother, graduated high school, and Nikki couldn't have been more proud. But August marked one of the biggest achievements for Nikki. She celebrated her one year clean and sober. On her Facebook page, she publicly thanked everyone who helped her along the way, saying, Through my journey out of addiction and trauma, I have learned self-love, self-care. I'm not perfect, but I try to grow every day. I've learned how to love those who wronged me the most and make amends for mine. It feels so good to be okay, internally, completely, and absolutely okay. And I honestly hope for this happiness and self-love for everyone. For 40-year-old Nikki Peterson, the momentum following her recovery from addiction and her ongoing volunteer work for survivors of trafficking and violence continued into the end of 2020 and beyond. In December, she posted this on Facebook. Life today is amazing because I make the choice to allow it to be. I set boundaries. I use words, thoughts, and action that lead to amazing results. And in tough times, I know how to deal, cope, and handle things that come my way. Nikki was thrilled she could finally be the kind of mom she'd always wanted to be and remained incredibly proud of her children. Nothing gave her more joy than seeing her babies grow into young adults in spite of everything they'd been through. On her son Gage's 21st birthday in October of 2021, she posted, I don't think this kid will ever realize or understand how much I love him and how important he is to me. Real talk, I will destroy worlds and kill for him. Happy 21st birthday, Gage. I hope it's filled with joy, greatness, and happiness. And things had actually been a bit tough for Gage, who lived in the nearby city of Provo. Gage had his fair share of run-ins with the law for traffic and drug offenses and had even done time, but Nikki was confident that she could be the role model that he really needed. Three months later, Nikki's daughter turned 18, and just like that, her kids were all grown up. So by now, Nikki was dating her future husband. And on Valentine's Day 2022, they made their relationship Facebook official. Everyone who knew Nikki could see how ecstatic she was to finally be in a truly loving, safe, and supportive relationship with a man who actually cared for her very deeply. In the lead up to their whirlwind engagement on April Fool's Day, Nikki posted, I seriously have the most amazing man in my life. I'm so beyond grateful for him and his family. Pretty amazing package deal. This man right here is the best thing that's happened to me since my kids. He makes me want to be better every day and pushes me in all the right ways. Then at 11.45 p.m. on the night of May 19th, police responded to a report of multiple gunshots in the area of 200 West and 200 North, where Nikki and her husband lived. A neighbor heard three gunshots and saw a blue 2002 Chevrolet Tahoe parked on the side of the road. When police arrived, they saw a gray Dodge Ram 2500 parked in front of the Tahoe, which had the driver and front passenger side doors open and a woman's purse sitting inside. Near the Tahoe, the body of a woman lay on the road. It was Nikki. She'd been shot in the head and the chest, but nobody else was in sight. As officers approached the Tahoe, unaware if the killer was still in close proximity, they saw a shell casing on the floor of the vehicle near the front passenger door jam. On the inside of the front passenger door was what looked like blood. Paramedics arrived, but there was nothing that could be done. While they tended to Nikki, who was lying in the street, 
wondering what happened. Was this a robbery gone wrong? What were they dealing with here? A man approached them. He was behaving erratically and told the paramedics that he'd just been involved in a shooting before he wandered off yet again. The first responders alerted police who spread out to see if they could find this potential suspect. So who was it? Police soon located him at 400 North and 300 East, but they had no idea who it was. You know, was it Donald who was by now out of jail and he could have tracked Nikki down? Was it another ex-boyfriend? Could it have been Nikki's ex-husband? What the man told police next would give you the shocking answer to that question when he stated, I shot my mom. It was Nikki's son, Gage. Initially, I was like, oh, her ex got out of prison and came back for her. But no, it was her son. Like, holy shit. Gage told the officers that he ditched the gun he used and he had thrown it at the Pleasant Grove Cemetery, about a block or two from the scene of the shooting. Police ultimately retrieved the weapon from the cemetery, as well as the black hoodie he'd been wearing that night. And as detectives spoke with Nikki's distraught husband and the neighbors in the area, a strange picture started to form about how things unfolded that night. Nikki's husband told detectives that Gage and Nikki had had tension between them for quite some time. You know, as we shared earlier, Gage had a police record. Only two months before, he pleaded no contest to child abuse and neglect charges after he was found smoking marijuana in a car with another person while a one-month-old and a 21-month-old were in the back seat. Right. So as far as the circumstances of the shooting goes, Nikki's husband told police that earlier that day, Nikki and Gage had been arguing, but it didn't seem like strange arguing. So apparently that night, Gage called around to their house and came over. And that's where these vehicles were parked, the Tahoe and the Dodge that we told you about. This was right in front of Nikki's house. So when Gage showed up, he was agitated and he was barking demands at Nikki. He wanted money. So Nikki's husband doesn't get involved or meddle in this argument between Nikki and her son, nor should he really, right? So he goes to bed and is like, you guys figure it out. But sometime afterwards, Nikki woke up her husband and she's like, hey, I'm going to go to the bank and I'm going to get some money for Gage and I'm going to drop him off somewhere. I think he wants to go to a bar. So she gave her husband the update and he's she's like, go back to bed. Don't worry about it. And as detectives spoke to neighbors asking if they'd seen or heard anything that night, one of them reported that he'd been woken up by what sounded like two gunshots earlier in the night. After he woke up, he looked out his window and he saw a man in a black hoodie standing over someone who lay on the ground. He saw and heard the man shoot the person lying on the ground, which was the third gunshot. He then saw the man flee the scene going east. So ironically, it was security measures Nikki had implemented herself, which were perhaps the most helpful when it came to gathering evidence in the case. There were security cameras on both of their vehicles, as well as inside and outside the apartment, which may have recorded what happened. When detectives retrieved some of the video surveillance, it showed Gage and Nikki leaving the apartment and walking to the Tahoe. At the vehicle, the camera recorded the sound of three shots and Nikki screaming. And in the days following Nikki's murder, her inner circle was obviously heartbroken. Her husband posted an emotional tribute on Facebook saying, My heart aches for you so, so, so much, my beautiful wife, twin flame, and best friend. I'm so lost without you. I can't begin to express what you brought to my life. You will forever be in my heart. And Soul Survivor Inc. posted, It is with heavy hearts that we say goodbye to one of our kindest souls. Our tattoo artist Nikki was shot and killed. Nikki was such a generous and selfless person. 
Even when she had a very busy schedule, she would find the time to help with our cause. She will greatly be missed. We pray for her husband and that justice will be served. Needless to say, Nikki and her husband's neighbors were stunned. Nothing like this had ever happened on this quiet street. And others were in a state of disbelief that Gage had done something so disturbing and out of character. It was hard for people to wrap their heads around. So Gage was charged with first-degree murder and obstruction of justice and held without bail in Utah County Jail. He told police he argued with his mother earlier in the day of the shooting. The shell casing and bloodstain evidence suggested that Nikki may have been shot first inside the Tahoe. And as detectives reviewed more of the security camera footage, Nikki appeared to be shot in the face and fled the SUV screaming. But Gage followed her, circling around to the other side of the Tahoe and firing a second shot, causing Nikki to fall to the ground before Gage walked over to her and fired a third shot. Pleasant Grove Police Department called the shooting a crime of passion, saying this shocks law enforcement, it shocks the family, it is unusual that it's a son killing his own mother, that doesn't happen. This is just a tragic set of events. And beyond what the police heard from Gage himself, and aside from the little which is publicly known at this stage, police don't really understand or have a solid motive as to why Gage did this. It's not even clear at this stage how Gage acquired the weapon or why he was arguing with Nikki in the car or what any of this was about. It sounds like she was going to the bank to give him money to appease what he was asking. And then he was going to drop him off exactly where he wanted to go. So what was this about? If Gage got his way, what were they fighting about? Could Nikki have been laying down the law that this was the last time? Could she have been setting a boundary with her son who was maybe taking advantage of her? We don't know. And there are so many pieces here we don't have answers to yet. And we may never have answers. It just seems so out of the blue and so unprovoked. We don't know what goes on in people's private lives, but it just seems so unprovoked and just so completely out of nowhere. It makes no sense because her son, I I would imagine, saw everything that she had been through and saw her struggle to overcome it and then turns around and kills her. I just can't make it make sense, which, I mean, I guess things like this never really do make sense. I've grown up really close with my parents, which is why it was so mind-blowing to me because I could never, even to save my own life, I could never even do that. And I don't know what her and her son's relationship was like, but I just, how you could ever do that to your own mom, you know? So this case is still in its early stages. Gage hasn't even entered a plea yet. That is how early that we're talking. And of course, during the discovery process, there's every possibility the charges could be downgraded if he does plead guilty. But if Gage pleads not guilty to first degree murder and is convicted, he could face life in prison. The entire case has left many people, including Laura, with bigger, sobering, philosophical questions about what the universe brings our way and why. Can we ever really know the people closest to us, who we do literally anything for? I haven't heard a ton since. It's been a little bit radio silent. The wheels of the criminal justice system turn pretty slow. I keep periodically checking to see how the case is progressing, but like I just haven't heard from like from my friends or anybody about any updates but I just keep keep checking you just never think in like very religious area that 
people are capable of this. You hear about it on true crime podcasts and you see it in the news and on Facebook, and but you, you never realize that that can happen close to home too. Kind of makes me look at the people close to me a little bit differently just because like if a son could turn on his mother like that, what is anyone around me capable of? You know, it just makes me a little more hesitant and just a little a little more on guard. You never know when your last day is or how you're going to die. It feels so, like, heart-wrenching to say, watch your back around the people you love. That's not something that you should ever have to worry about. For all of the amazing work Nikki was doing, giving back to the community and helping survivors heal, both physically and emotionally, there's heartbreaking irony in her murder. It's tragic that someone who was so dedicated to eradicating violence against women was killed by her own son so senselessly. Sure, Nikki and Gage had their fair share of conflict like any parent and child, but none of their friends and neighbors ever suspected Gage would go to such extreme lengths. Nikki's personal experience of intimate partner violence made her street smart and vigilant about safety in her romantic relationships, but she never thought she would be in fear of someone she'd brought into the world, let alone a son with whom she was working hard on restoring their relationship. Gage obviously had his own demons, and in a completely disproportionate reaction, chose to end the life of the woman who was proud of him and unconditionally on his side. Now Gage will never know his mother's love again, neither will his siblings, his aunts, his uncles, or Nikki's grieving husband, his her newlywed husband. Nor will we ever know what great things Nikki could have gone on to accomplish, who she could have helped heal, whose life she could have saved, and beyond. She wasn't perfect, she knew it, and no one is. But Nikki was loved by many and made such a meaningful contribution to the community, paying forward the kindness others had shown her in her hour of need. So if you'd like to keep Nikki's legacy alive, learn more about the ongoing valuable work of Soul Survivor Inc. and make a donation. You can visit www.soulsurvivor.inc and follow the links. Well, a huge thank you to Laura for being our first great guest today. If you are listening and you have a story to tell, no story is too small. Please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all of the time. Join our Patreon. We have brand new content for you every single week and check back tomorrow for a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feeds. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monica for scoring original music for the first degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by the talented Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are court documents, KSL News, Fox 13, KUTV, ABC4, the Salt Lake Tribune, the Utah County Sheriff's Office, the Bald Avenger Podcast, Soul Survivor Inc., and the National Library of Medicine. And as always, and as essential, our first three guests is always our largest source. <laughs>